10, 9, ignition sequence start, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, all engine running, liftoff, we have a liftoff. Welcome, curious minds and avid learners, to STEAM Chat, where the worlds of science, technology, engineering, art, agriculture, and mathematics converge in a symphony of innovation and discovery. Tune in and enjoy as we guide you through the realms of STEM, where we unravel the mysteries of the universe, explore cutting-edge technologies, and delve into the fascinating intricacies of the natural world. Join us on this intellectual journey as we bridge the gap between theory and application, uncover the wonders that shape our past, define our present, and inspire the future. Get ready to ignite your curiosity and embark on a captivating exploration of the STEM frontier. This is the Mesquite Works STEAM Chat, where science meets fascination and knowledge knows no bounds. Steve, this is so exciting for me to interview Shannon, who has worked for NASA. And is our next door neighbor now in St. George. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, welcome, Shannon. Hi. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Tell us how you got started with NASA. How did I get started with NASA? Well, when I was a child, Voyager launched, and Voyager, they're two Voyager spacecrafts, and the Voyager spacecrafts went and explored the outer solar system. And that was the first time we'd sent spacecraft out past Saturn. So this was really capturing my attention. And I said I wanted to work for NASA. I was eight, maybe, nine. Isn't that great? Somewhere in there. Wow. Yeah, eight or nine. I'd have to look, go back and look at the year. And so I kind of had that focus from there on out. And then shortly after that happened, shuttle started flying, and that really further sparked my interest. My grandmother took me on a trip to Houston to Johnson Space Center one year. Well, we went somewhere else on vacation, but we stopped in Houston so I could see Johnson. And then a couple of years later, my aunt took me to Kennedy Space Center in Florida for the first time. And they, they were really good at, you know, continuing to foster my interest in STEM and science. And that's why I got into it. And when I, when I went to college, I chose to major in astronomy because like I say when you're going to go build spacecraft and fly them to other planets why not major in something that has nothing to do with that like research astronomy <laughs> uh, someone should have told me I should have gone into engineering majored in astronomy got out of school and had a friend of a friend who had gotten a job at NASA JPL and took my resume around and I took me about three months but I got a job there where were you living at then? I was living in pa um, I was living in Pasadena. I had to think about it for a minute. <clears throat> I just moved to Pasadena, California, so I was right there. I mean, I literally could ride my bike to work if I wanted to, which I did for a little while. So I was living in Pasadena, and I'd gotten married. I'd just gotten married. My husband was working in the other direction in the El Monte City of Industry area, which is also part of L.A., and I just kind of hung out there that summer and looked for other jobs. And it was funny the day I had applied for a job at a local observatory, which is really a, it's Griffith Observatory, which is the big iconic observatory yeah. in Los yeah, Angeles. Very iconic. They don't do research astronomy there. It's all 
tourist-based programming. I would think that it's a little light around there now. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I had applied for a job there with, at the time, the director, observatory director, whose name was Dr. Ed Krupp. And he called me for an interview about an hour after I'd gotten a job offer from Jet Propulsion Lab. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you said you were interested as a child in astronomy and the space program. Did you... Did that inspire you to take lots of math and science? It did. I think all of the things I was interested in growing up, with the exception of history, which is kind of its outlier. I liked music a lot. I still do. Um, that's very math-based. I also liked archaeology a lot. I was a child of the 70s and early 80s. And in those days, <clears throat> women or young ladies were cautioned against going into those fields only because of the physical dangers on the ground in some of the places that you would be doing excavation work. They didn't, nobody knew enough to tell me that you don't go out there by yourself. And not all archaeological or anthropological sites are in places that are, you know, having civil wars in the middle of them. There are all sorts of places around the world that have archaeological active digs, including like literally in our backyard here, you know, in Utah and Colorado, which the last time I checked, we do not have warring factions of tribal people right. running around, you know, perfectly safe. So all the things I was interested in had some STEM focus of some kind. Mm -hmm. Like I said, with the exception of history, it was kind of its outlier. But history, I loved because learning about history was a lot about learning about, it's a very anthropological type thing. You learn a lot about the past and how people interacted and how people developed and grew. And it's also very much like putting a puzzle together in a lot of ways. So I think it still kind of falls into that STEM category slightly. What was your first project you worked on? You worked on for NASA. Oh, my first project I worked on for NASA was a mission called Magellan. It was an orbiting spacecraft that orbited Venus, and we mapped the entire surface of that planet using radar data. So, Venus—if you look at Venus through a telescope—it is completely covered in clouds, so you can't see the surface. But you can penetrate those clouds using what we call synthetic aperture radar, which is a type of radar. And we were able to map the surface, the entire surface of the planet. We've used that technology to map all sorts of other, we used it to map Titan, to map the Earth, but also Venus. So Venus was a polar orbiting mission and we mapped the surface. It was really an awesome experience. How would, did the data come back? <laughs> Your satellites? How, how have things changed? Yeah. So this was in the early 1990s. So back in the day before the internet was widely available. Mm -hmm. And if you were really, really lucky, you would have fiber optic line running to your facility. We did not. <clears throat> so what would happen was we have three sets of spacecraft communications antennas around the world. One's in Australia, one's in Spain, and one's in California. And the data would come from the spacecraft back to one of those three stations and be recorded on big magnetic tapes, and these were like 12 or 14 inch diameter tapes. And they looked a lot like if you know what an old movie projector looked like, except without the image part of it, obviously. That's what the things look like. Come in, they get recorded, and then the ones from California would get couriered down to Jet Propulsion Lab. It was about a 90 minute to two hour drive and they worked on a contract with us. So if someone was coming down, they'd courier the tapes down or we would do drive up and pick up. I did drive up and pick up some And this times. was in the 90s? This was in the Still early 90s. Still the big mag tapes? Yep, big mag tapes. 
and then we'd process those so you'd get every orbit would go it would go like California, Spain, Australia. So you'd get every third orbit when you do that. <clears throat> then you'd know when the the other ones came in on ship or via airplane, you'd know because all of a sudden you get a big dump of data from one of the other two complexes. Was that exciting, getting the data back? It was so exciting. If, when you realize it, when I was working on the mission at the time, I knew it was like the first time we'd really looked at the image surface of mm-hmm. Venus at this level. I mean, we'd looked at it through Arecibo, which was a a radar astronomy dish in Puerto Rico. In fact, it is it stars at the beginning of Contact, <laughs> the movie. We've looked at Venus. The, uh, the Soviets at the time, or Russians now, had a couple of landers that were successful, so we had very small data sets from them. Oh, they would share. After, after the... Uh, End of this after the Soviet Union fell. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so this was right in that era. In fact, we had three Russian scientists on our team that came over and worked with us, which was kind of fun because we were starting to foster that relationship between the scientific communities of the two countries. But none of that before then. Oh no! No 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 no. So we kind of had some sense that Venus was, you know was had craters and it had mountains and it had all these other valleys and all these features but we had no idea what it looked like really so it was really exciting to see the surface of venus at that level and to think about the fact that we all know that venus is very hot on the surface it's about 900 degrees fahrenheit and we all know it's all covered in clouds because of the we call it a runaway greenhouse effect what you don't realize is that the surface pressure on the surface of venus because of all that is about the same as if you were standing at the bottom of about a 100-foot lake, huh? deep lake. So you're, you've got this really thick air mass sitting on you on the surface. So when a meteorite would land on the surface, you'd get these beautiful ejecta blankets that are very concentrated around the point of impact because the stuff couldn't scatter very far. Radar data is very bright or dark. So it's bright or dark. And anything that's flat, like a lake bed or something, would show very dark because you're, it's all based on the reflectivity of your radar beam that you're sending and receiving. But anything like a mountain or a lava field or an ejecta blanket from a crater would look very bright. So you'd get these amazingly bright ejecta blankets around these craters, which I think was kind of the coolest thing. Sounds cool. <laughs> yeah. What are some other projects that you worked on? Let's see, I did two different stints on a mission called Galileo. Galileo was a Jupiter orbiter. It was launched off of the shuttle in ni- the early 1980s, that's all I can tell you. Oh, no, it was 1985, I think. Don't quote me, though. I might be wrong. <laughs> Mid-80s. And this was the spacecraft that famously had the high-gain antenna that would not open. It was a collapsible antenna. It was a proven technology, but... It, because of the space, the odd situation of the spacecraft launch being delayed for a long time, the little bearings froze in place. And they couldn't open the antenna. So I worked on that mission twice. I did one stint of uplink operations with them, doing programming for the spacecraft. And I did another when they were finishing the mission. I closed their mission out for outreach. So we did a couple of big media events for them. I kind of did that. Worked on that. I worked on shuttle again, radar data that we did mapping the earth did two different flights on shuttle so we had 
you call them back room. It's where the payload operations group was. This is a back room, and then there's mission control. So we all kind of shared all those duties for two flights. I worked on Cassini. I held something like six or seven different positions on Cassini because I kept moving around that mission flight project. I couldn't get rid of it. <laughs> you moved around on purpose? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So I worked. I did mission planning and mission design before launch. I did launch operations for them. I did early cruise mission planning, which is basically putting the sequences together for the spacecraft. I did deep space network scheduling, which is our space comm scheduling. I did education for them. I did public engagement for them. Did I get them all? I did radar data for them. We had a radar mapper on that one, too. That mapped the surface of Venus. I'm uh, Venus, Titan. Not all of the surface of Titan, but we did do some Titan radar mapping. So I did some work with them too. So yeah, so I moved all over the place on that mission just for fun. So okay, yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm the one who I get bored quick. So I, yeah, <laughs> when I worked, I would have to move to different projects. Me too. I yeah, I I would find doing one thing for a long time yeah extremely boring. So I'd have to move around. Yeah. When we were having lunch a little bit earlier at Steve's favorite restaurant. My favorite restaurant. Table of Contents. Right? <laughs> Yum. You were telling me that you had to learn a lot when you first started with NASA. Your your college degree didn't quite prepare you for what you needed, right? That's correct. And I remind students that are in high school... It, you know, pick a pick a major when you're going to college that you'll enjoy, that you'll learn a lot, but know that your learning will not end when you get that piece of paper that says you've graduated. So I came out, I had a degree in astronomy, research astronomy. I got a job at NASA working on Magellan, which was a radar orbiting mission. Didn't know anything about radar. Working with a lot of geologists, and the most I knew about geology was I'd taken a class in earthquake science in college, which has nothing to do with the geology you do on another planet. So yeah, so I got thrown in to learning a lot about all of that. Sounds like you learned fast. Yeah. Too. Okay, and then that we're talking STEAM today. Mm -hmm. I know I better not say STEM because art belongs in there. And agriculture. And agriculture, yes. I think what you were saying was that you're going to come into STEM or you're going to go do your, or, or you're going to go through your education, but you might have a job when you come out that hasn't even been invented yet. Yes. I often get asked by students, you know, how do I, how do I know what I want to do if you say my job hasn't been invented yet? I said, well, when I was in college, when I was in high school, my grandmother was a film editor. She worked for several of the big, big Columbia Pictures, MGM, Desilu, if you're of the age that you know what that is. And one of the things she taught me was how to properly thread a film projector. And anybody under the age of about 50 that's listening to this podcast has no clue what I'm talking about. So films used to be done put on big reels and you would run them in a projector and you'd have to thread the projector correctly or the film would not run at the right speed and you'd either get poor sound or poor picture. On top of it, your standard 90 minute to two hour movie would come on three or four reels. So when you'd go to a movie theater to see a movie, they would have two projectors. They'd often have three because they'd have a backup, but they'd have two projectors in each projection booth. 
And part of the game with learning how to properly run a movie was how to align those projectors and then learn how to turn the one off and the one on so that it looks seamless to the viewers that are sitting in the theater below you. So my grandmother taught me all of this just because I was nerdy and had fun doing this. So when I was in high school, I had the opportunity to go work at a movie house because I knew how to do this. And the guy was like, oh my God, I don't have to train you to do this. You actually know what you're doing. In this day and age, movies are sent digitally to the theater house. In fact, I don't even know if they send them anymore. I think they're probably set on a collective somewhere that they just Uh, log in. I wonder about that often. Yeah, yeah. And so, but that digital technology didn't exist at the time. So there were things that when I was growing up, the whole concept of, you know, using an iPhone or using a digital film or streaming a video online just didn't exist yet. But there's a whole, there's a whole industry out there for that now. And you can think about this over and over and over again. You know, think about how when you used to plan a flight to go visit your relatives in Florida. You know, and you'd have to go to the travel agent, and the travel agent would pull out this book that looked like a phone book, and it was called an OAG. I don't even know what it stands for anymore. And they'd look up, oh, you want to go from, you know, Las Vegas to Orlando. And they'd look up that routing, and here are the flights that were listed, and it was all in code. And now you just go on orbits, and you book it yourself. (laughs) It's the same thing. So you tell students, you know, what you need to do is find something you enjoy doing, study it, and then, but don't be afraid to move jobs or move careers or move companies even when you start seeing new technology on the horizon or new, it's not just technology-based, but new um, opportunities arise. So getting the education now isn't going to hurt you later. Correct. It's not at all. It's not, oh, you learned that, um, you're old, you don't know anything about this. You're going to be, you're still advanced and you can advance into, well, actually, that's why we change jobs. Yes, exactly. Yeah, if you don't change jobs, you get yourself stuck in a rut, basically. Yeah. And speaking about changing jobs within NASA, Mm -hmm. you started working with STEM I did. So I enjoyed working with people much more than I enjoyed working with computers and equipment. And I finally, after fighting that for a while, figured, well, let me try this STEM thing out. You know, they're looking for someone who can, I always called it translate, translate what the scientists are speaking into something that, you know, the news broadcaster or the high school student can understand. So I started doing this for a mission called Topex, which was an ocean mapping mission. It was an Earth orbiter. It was an ocean mapping mission. It measured sea surface temperature. And it was going along its way, mapping things. And it actually tracked the first big El Nino in the late 1990s. It's not the first big El Nino. It was the first big El Nino we tracked. Let's put it that way. This made global news. Everybody was interested in El Nino and weather patterns. And gal that was running their program was a one-person office and she was just buried in trying to answer emails and stuff so i started doing phone calls and email for her a couple days a week for a couple hours just kind of lightening her load and i just found i kind of enjoyed it because i was learning new stuff and i was trying to keep my skills up to date and i was talking to people from literally all over the world and all walks of life answering their 
middle school homework questions up to their broadcasters for their weather reporters and everything else in between and just really enjoyed it. So I looked around and kind of put my, you know, my feelers out there and started pestering people. And someone finally, I guess, got tired of listening to me complain that I wanted to move jobs and offered me a job building an education program for Cassini, which was a Saturn-based mission. And how did you approach that? How did you start the creative process of (laughs) thinking about how to put all of that together? So I'd been working on, I ironically was on Cassini, actually, as a mission plan. Was I mission planning at the time? Yeah, I was in mission planning. So basically that is taking the what the scientists want to do with the spacecraft at any time, taking what the engineers need to do with the spacecraft to keep it healthy, and putting that together in a basically a timeline. You're basically building a calendar for the spacecraft, and then you hand it to the coder to actually do the coding and uplink. And... That was a fun job because the scientists and the engineers never argued with each other, ever, ever. They were always totally simpatico on what they wanted to do. Right. So you would often be the arbiter or the... You know. Oh, oh. Yes, it would be quite fun. Be facetious. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> It'd be really fun. So you were the middle. I was the middle person, okay. so yes. you had older son, younger son. yes. I often said I and was... And you were the, still the mom, so... Yes. There you go. Yes, I was often said that, you know, when I was I was training to go into the Peace Corps after that. Okay, let, me ask, <laughs> let me just throw this in there. Yeah. Did they ever go to the other parent? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. To above your head? Oh, yes. All the time. And she wasn't being nice to us. Right. She's being okay. mean. She's the meanest mom ever. Yes, exactly <laughs> what I would get. Yeah. So I wasn't, <clears throat> I wasn't blind to what we were doing with the spacecraft. I'd come off the science side of the house. I'd come off the mission planning side of the house. So I had a good sense of a good broad knowledge base, but not a deep knowledge base across all the science and engineering of the mission. So I said, okay, let's bring a group of teachers in and spend a couple days talking with them. And we'll get some scientists and some engineers and the whole process is to figure out what teachers need in their classroom at different levels right you know basically k through 12 and and i should mention this that nasa when we say nasa education they break it into three categories there's k through 12 if you're in a u.s market there's k through 12 then there's college and then there's doctoral and postdocs so what i was looking at was strictly that k through 12 environment okay so I got a bunch of teachers in from different areas, different places, inner cities, suburban, high socioeconomic, low socioeconomic, rural. And we we did this two or three times. Started looking at what do they need. This also was during the time of the Bush administration's No Child Left Behind. So we started folding in. Those are the early days of education standards, national education standards. So we'd fold those in. I went to an awful lot of teacher conferences a couple of years trying to learn just that side of the house because that's not where my strength lied. And then I said, let's start looking at where are we devoid NASA across NASA for materials. And it definitely fell in that, that elementary band. Most people were building progress, STEM or STEAM education programs for middle school because high school was scary. They didn't understand it, the curriculum there. Most science professionals or 
people working at NASA. Just they just didn't know what to do up there. And they didn't understand why we would bother, like like somehow STEM professionals are born in middle school. I don't know. So I said, well, let's focus on elementary. We'll do some stuff for the upper grades also, but let's focus there because that's where we're really devoid. And we built this program that was a low-cost um, materials program for teachers in grades kindergarten through fourth grade. It was called Saturn in Your Kitchen and Backyard. So what we did was we took the science and engineering concepts of the mission, and we'd build different activities that would demonstrate or replicate one aspect of the science or engineering of the mission. They were short, they could be done in an hour, and then they used all materials that you could either have sitting around your house or your school classroom or that you could pick up easily, like paper cups or laser pointers, I think were the single most expensive thing that were on that list. But even in those days, most teachers had laser pointers floating around or could get access to them pretty easily. So then that's what we did. We just built, I don't even remember how many were finally in that program. I mean, we just kept building them. So our goal was to do one. We had 12 science instruments on the orbiter, the Cassini orbiter, and then we had another six on our Titan probe. And our goal was to do the 12 and then one for the probe. And I think we did 20 some odd because we did a bunch of engineering things too. So uh, am I understanding correctly, you did lesson plans that teachers could follow? Them? Yeah, they were lesson plans. They're quite old now, but you mm -hmm. can still find them online occasionally. I actually had to pull an old one online. Last year, I applied to be a teacher liaison with the Space Foundation in Colorado Springs. And I had to pull one of the old ones. And I'm like, I don't have those files anymore. They're not even on the NASA website, like where you can find them because they haven't been updated to new national. They don't align with the current standards anymore. So I had to go Google, you know, and I found one of the ones that worked and still worked well. Just had to update it for that. But yeah, so they're still out there. I think they're out there in pieces, but they are out there on the web. You can look for them. Is that you said that was called Saturn in your Saturn in your kitchen and backyard? And and backyard. Yeah. And then we did a second one which was for slightly older students. It was more focused on the scientists and their stories. I didn't never I did not finish that program before I moved on to another job, so I can't remember what they ended up calling those. But they would be take things like you're a scientist and you're a volcanologist and you study other planets. So it would be kind of your story and then it would have some activity that would involve volcanology. So it was that type of a program. I don't remember the name of that one though. How was funding for that? Low. Because <laughs> I, I assume you had funding. Yeah. At NASA. Yeah. Okay. But then the schools, did any of the schools, because they couldn't get funding, did any of the schools then not participate? So these programs were actually things they could pick up off the internet they were free that's why that's why the you know the goal that the threshold was like 10 bucks for them to be able to outfit a classroom in those okay. days so we did a lot of things with like empty bottles coke bottles and stuff like that at one point we were developing a uh, an activity and we needed you know the little caps like off of water bottles and i needed like 200 of those to test this program so we had a vending machine downstairs, and I put a big manila envelope out. I said, please, please donate your Coke bottle lid to, you know, the Cassini outreach team. And, and we got them. It was pretty easy. But, yeah, no, schools didn't have a barrier of entry. It was more a barrier of the teacher would have to get it approved to do in her classroom or his classroom. And then we've learned very quickly that if you started on the after-school market or the informal ed market or the summer camp market, then the teacher would come and do it and like it, and it would end up in their classroom. 
in the next year. So that's how we actually figured out how to get it in the classrooms, other than going directly during the school year saying, this will this will augment your teaching of this science standard. They're like, I don't have time for that. You know, I'm in the middle of the school year. But if you have them demo it in the summertime at some science program mm-hmm. you're doing. I remember yeah. some of that. Yes. <laughs> and Linda, you could, did you have enough flexibility as a teacher? If you saw something like that individually, could you bring that into your class or did that sure. have to get approved? No, we could do that. And we also had different courses from our local uni- engineering university mm-hmm. of how to uh, bring mathematics into the classroom, different fun things, experiments the kids nice. could do f- with hands-on math. So that was a little different because you and I didn't learn hands-on math. No, no. It was all memorize the formula. Yeah. The most hands-on was the pencil in hand. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So, Shannon, I was going to ask you, you said you started working in the science-slash-mathematics field in the late 60s, early 70s? No, late. No, my first job was in, I started in 1990. Okay. So, yeah, so I graduated in 1989 from college. Okay. So, a lot had opened up for women by then. I was going to ask you if you found any feelings like a woman shouldn't be doing this job. I did not. I came in just guns a-blazing, saying, this is what I want to do. Nothing's going to stop me. I didn't even notice until I did a formal... I was on an advisory team at Jet Propulsion Lab right before I left, finally, on the growth of women in the workplace across NASA. And I didn't even notice this, but when I started, apparently about 20% of the workforce at NASA was female in the early 90s. And, of course, most of those women were secretaries in those days. Mm-hmm. So there were very few women in technical roles. But my attitude, and also I came in, the first mission I did, remember, was Magellan, which was a geology mission. And even in those days, there were more women in geology than a lot of the other oh, scientists, okay. a lot of the other scientific fields. Sure. <clears throat> so there were a fair number of female geologists that I worked with. And I just didn't really notice that there weren't a lot of other women around when I first started. But there was definitely an old boys network. There still is very much an old boys network, not just at NASA, but in the science fields. But it's not so much, what's interesting is that a lot of the, I go back and say a lot of the hardest um, managers I had to work with were actually women in the day. And those, because those were women that were older than me who had sacrificed family and personal life for their career and had let those days pass them. And... There was a lot of animosity towards those of us who did have families and personal lives from those women. So I always found they were really hard to work with because they very much had this, well, I worked 80 hours a week, you know, and I don't have any kids and I never got married. So, you know, you should be that way, too. And I'm like, yeah, the world is changing. I think it changed a lot between the 70s and 90s. No, very much so. Yeah. Well, and it's very much like one of my favorite movies for so many reasons, is Apollo 13. I literally watched it again last night. Oh, I love that. I love that movie. So many reasons is one of my favorites, but we'll go into that in another time. But when you watch it, now watching, now go back and watch it, you know, if you haven't watched it for a while. And you'll appreciate a lot of things like the leadership skills that Tom Hanks, you know, as Jim Lovell shows through the mission, or as Gene Kranz's character, is played by Ed Harris, shows in the bit. But you also see a lot of the kind of that 
World War II relic, because those guys all grew up in that era. Wow. You know, they're a little younger than that, but their dads were all in that era. Of and a lot of them came out of military. And when I started, you still had a lot of that. The older people that I worked with had were were products of that World War II training mindset, and that has changed 180 degrees since and you don't see that anymore hardly at least i haven't seen it for a long time and in the movie the women's role was to support the husband yes no matter what yes and don't complain don't make waves we're happy proud and thrilled it's my favorite line in the movie yes (laughs) yes Why should young girls or young people in general, but young girls specifically, focus on a STEM education? My biggest thing is there's opportunity out there. We're very much in a data and tech-driven society right now, and that could change in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. It could morph into some other kind of society. But for right now, STEM is where a lot of the jobs are going, whether you're going into computer science or even if you're interested in the movie industry, or even if you're interested in something like makeup. It's amazing to me how much science goes into the world of makeup artistry. And not just the applications, but the, like what you're putting on your face. I went to a program for a, a group of high school students, young ladies that I work with, Saturday. And it was a Clinique workshop, so Clinique, the makeup company. And the amount of science that those girls got on the products that Clinique is selling now and the different types of skin types and the different type of research they do and the different type of environmental studies they do is amazing to me. And that's all STEM related. It's chemistry, you know, and environmental science, but it's mostly chemistry. And I think what I see down the road, and again, I could be wrong, is I see a a heavy STEM base in terms of career success moving forward. The other nice thing about tech careers is unless you're working in a lab or you're doing strictly doing field work, like you're a field geologist, a lot of what you're doing, you can do in your own home with your home office. You can go into computer science and you can be the world of um, freelance work is all over out there. You know, I have a friend who's a tech journalist. She's a journalist. She went to NYU journalism school. She freelances. She does technology write-ups. The biggest conference she does every year? Computer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Wow. You know, (laughs) she goes every year. (laughs) She almost never goes to a journalism conference Mm -hmm. because that's not where her bent is, not in journalism. She's in tech. And she knows what's out there. She knows what's coming. So I think think STEM is hugely important for young girls to study. And you can find something. If you don't like math... You're going to have to struggle with it to some extent, no matter what you go into. But you can find a passion in STEM that isn't math-focused, necessarily. Or you can find a passion in STEM. I have no 3D modeling skills, so aerospace engineering would have been a huge struggle for me. I went into environmental for my master's. Environmental doesn't have that 3D focus. I don't know how to run AutoCAD. When I need AutoCAD, I call my son, who knows AutoCAD, because he's a structural engineer. 
And I call him and he says, well, what do you want to do? And then he gets frustrated with me and I get stuff back that's this amazing AutoCAD thing. You know, I, it would take me months to figure out what he does. But I bet he enjoyed it. He did. Yes. Because <laughs> yes. you made him think. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's really, if you like, if you, you know, there's botany and there's landscape architecture and there's, there's a, you know, a lot, there's medicine and there's all sorts. Medicine is like this huge field, just like all other science. People say, oh, you're going to go into science. And it's like, you do know that's like a whole broad industry, right? <laughs> there's, so, I mean, you could pick a subset of science and you could pick geology, let's say. I keep picking on geology today because we talked about Magellan. And there's a whole subsuite of geology fields you could go into that are, might be more or less interesting to you. You might be interested in coastal marine geology, or you might be interested in volcanology, or study of volcanoes. Or... So there's all sorts of different STEM fields out there. You just kind of have to f pick around and see what interests you, and also what your skill strengths are. It's okay to not be strong in an area and work at it. You don't need to be the, you know, the valedictorian of your class in every single class you take. You, it's okay to work hard in a class and learn the material well and not get the A. It really is. But you have to understand basic things like, do you like, if you're going to go into science, do you like working in a lab or do you like working outside in the field? They're completely different environments. I went into astronomy. Astronomy, when I went into it, was a field geol was a field science. You went to the observatory and you worked on a mountaintop in freezing cold temperatures in the middle of the night and people thought you were crazy. Hmm. Now I don't know anybody except the astronomy postdoc that gets stuck doing that. The researchers are all working at home in their pajamas with their coffee cups. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's turned into a lab science in that sense. But you have to decide what you like. Why you need math for STEM. Why you need math for STEM besides the acronym? Yes. Because here, at, well, I worked for NASA, which is the National Acronym Slingers Association, as you know. <laughs> so if you can't make an, ast an acronym out of it, you can't use it. You know, <laughs> <in the real world. laughs> so the M has to be there, otherwise it would just be STE, and that's just weird. <laughs> no, math is your universal constant language that ties everything together. It really is. When you, even when you're looking at the A in STEAM, the art side of it, there's a lot of math involved. If you're interested in music... Performing arts, dance, figure skating, which is kind of related to dance in some ways. Don't let the figure skaters or the dancers say that, but hear me say that. But, you know, there's math involved in all of those fields. But math is your universal constant language to me. It's what makes things go. And going back to that, that when I mentioned Arecibo and it, that how that antenna uh, start at the beginning of Contact, the movie. If you haven't read, actually read the book first by Carl Sagan, and you can watch the movie with Jodie Foster. Um, you know, that's all she figured out what was going on because of math. You know, she was listening to repeating sequences. It's all math. <laughs> did and that the, answer your question? Yes, it did. Okay. Which brings me back to Linda's always with her math, because she was a math teacher, is always saying... Um, math is problem-solving skills, mm -hmm. and creativity, everything, you use problem-solving skills. Yes. Right, Shannon. When you were talking about the musicians and figure skaters, I was also thinking about visual oh, yeah. artists. There's a lot of 
math involved mm-hmm. in just drawing. Yes, absolutely. Doing the proportions. Absolutely. Shannon, can you define creativity for us as you see it? Creativity, as I see it, is what takes what's in your mind and makes it possible. Does that make any sense? So you can... Creativity is, a, is an, to me, an innately human trait. You can take a math problem and solve it creatively, or you can take something as dull as this pencil here and make beautiful art with it because of your creativity. But creativity falls, it's much further than that. I mean, if you, you want to see one of the most creative STEM fields out there, look at architecture. You know, it is unbelievable what what people can do with timber and rocks and concrete. It really is. And that to me, that's what creati- creativity is. It's visual creativity. It's, it's scientific creativity. You know, if we didn't have creativity, we wouldn't have all the medicines and the treatments that we have for disease in the, in the modern era. A lot of that is somebody taking what they see in their mind, there must be a cure for this disease and going through those creative steps to get to that cure, whatever it is. And you believe that's in finance as well, right? I do, in the good sense. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You hear about creative financing, that's a different thing. But yeah, I think there's there's creativity even in finance and in all sorts of different fields because you have to be out there and you're looking for the new the new thing Mm -hmm. you know right now the new thing is bitcoin and and cryptocurrencies and that's very creative just that whole concept i still am not sure i can wrap my head all the way around it but i'm getting there or like 10 years ago 15 years ago my girlfriend says oh i texted with my husband today and i'm like you did what i texted with him he was in a meeting and i needed to ask him what he wanted for dinner so i texted him and i'm like you what he says on my phone i texted him I was so confused about this. So I went home and I looked at Scott and said, do you ever text anybody? Now it's like my phone has gone off. I don't know how many texts I've gotten while we've been recording this podcast. I keep hearing it buzzing away back there. (laughs) When you answered this question for us on our questionnaire, you noted that if physicists had never thought creatively, we would not have Mylar insulation, spacecraft, rovers on Mars or the particle collide. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Nor would we have mylar balloons that we pick up on every hike out in the desert. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. I'll cut that out. <laughs> but you also you wouldn't have all of you wouldn't have any of those things. You wouldn't have you wouldn't have um, look at the stuff that's come out of the space industry. You know, you wouldn't have mylar as a great example of that Kevlar. Anybody who's worked in the in the inner cities in a gang-infested environment is very appreciative for Kevlar because that's what the basis of a bulletproof vest is. Kevlar was invented so that spacecraft would not blow up every time a micrometeorite hit them. Oh, is that what that is? Yeah. You know, and that's a creative, you know, solving a problem creatively. Do you know when a micrometeorite hits Cassini? Not usually. Not usually? No. Um, when it's, it's just deflected and... Well, it'll impact. I'm yeah. sure... Well, we don't get the spacecraft back. They never come back. That's so true. you never know what they look like. So in shuttle world, in the space shuttle, which is basically 
for better or worse, a big flying airplane with windows in the front of it. You know, just kind of look at it that way. They're specialized windows. But those windows are next to the tiles on the bottom, which are their own story. The windows are the next most vulnerable spot of the spacecraft. So when we flew shuttle, we had very strict amounts of time that we could fly in an attitude where you would assume you would fly all the way with your nose facing forward. We almost always flew with our butt facing forward, which is the engine bells, because the engine bells could take micrometeorite hits all the time. I mean, they got blasted with 3,000, you know, degree rocket fuel. <laughs> so, yeah, so you'd fly, you'd fly back forward almost all the time to shield those windows from micrometeorite hits because there are a few places in space as dirty as low Earth orbit. Uh-oh. Because of all the debris that we've yeah. put up there as humans over the years that has broken up and is still floating around out there that hasn't, you know, come down and degraded enough to burn up in our atmosphere. When the space shuttle would come back, mm-hmm. would there be pits in the windows? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, yeah. And in solar, if you look at the, the tiles, the tiles would have pits all over the bottoms of them, too. Yeah. Pretty, pretty incredible stuff. You had mentioned that you were not working for NASA during mm-hmm. the Challenger incident. Um, you were still in high school. I was in college, but oh, yeah. Oh, college. But you said you worked for NASA during Columbia? I did. How did that impact you and the others on the staff? So NASA is a large distributed agency. There are nine field centers around the country. They are in just, some of them are in Northern California, Southern California, Texas, Mississippi, Florida, so one I drew a blank on, and then around up through Cleveland and Goddard. And the point of bringing this up is that there are hundreds of thousands of NASA employees and contractors. Human space flight is the big PR dog in NASA. It always has been because you're flying humans, but it's actually a very small part of NASA. So I worked out for Jet Propulsion Laboratory at the time, which their job was robotic exploration of the solar system. So Mars rovers, spacecraft, robotic spacecraft that fly to other planets, no human space flight. Um, There were two of us that worked on, I was on Cassini at the time. There were two of us on Cassini who had worked shuttle operations. The young man who I worked with, he was younger than I was. he knew one of the astronauts on board Columbia. I did not know any of the astronauts on board, but my flight activity officer um, husband, so she was flight activities officer for our flights. Her husband was stranded on space station for a year. Oh. So he was an astronaut. He was on orbit when that happened, and they had no way to get them back, so they were stuck there until they figured this out. Um, so it impacted us directly because we knew people that were impacted directly. But for the most of part, most of NASA, the people I worked with at NASA didn't didn't feel a direct impact to it. They felt an indirect impact because when something like that happens, you get a lot of funding cuts. You get a lot of funding freezes, not necessarily a cut, but we're not going to put more money into this program over here until we solve what that problem was, you know. So everybody felt it but in different ways. I'm trying to think if we had, when Challenger um, 
blew up on launch in 1986. It's when Galileo, the spacecraft I worked on, to Jupiter with the bad antenna, um, was sitting in Florida. It was going to be on the next shuttle launch or the one after it. So that was a direct hit to that mission. They were going to Jupiter. They only had certain windows to fly, so it had to go to the next launch window so that we had, you, you can only launch in certain ways so that you maximize your fuel, the, minimize the fuel you take on board, maximize the amount of um, help you get from the other planets um, in their gravity to get it out there. So they took that spacecraft, they shipped it back to Jet Propulsion Laboratory. It sat in storage for, I don't know, three or four years, and then they shipped it back and launched it, which is why they think the antenna broke. Failed on it. Oh, was okay. it they had that all of this had gone on? And Sat on. for a couple. Of years. Yeah, this was a standard Tedris antenna. The Army and the Air Force have used those antennas on s satellites for years. They launch them, they open them up. Eight minutes later, they don't put it together, put it on a spacecraft, send it to the Cape, send it back, put it in storage, send it back yeah. to the Cape. You know, you're getting the picture. So something something happened there. But yeah, but everyone felt an indirect impact. But I think very few people I knew felt a direct impact. I think Americans absolutely love their astronauts, and both the Challenger and Columbia was, uh, we all shared a collective grief, I think, mm -hmm. with that. and I'm sure you did in NASA as well. Oh, yeah. Well, and they both, both those missions had, the Columbia mm -hmm. mission um, was flying the first Israeli-born astronaut on it. So he perished in that accident. And, of course, the 9086 one had the teacher in space, yeah. mm -hmm. which is partly they attribute part of the reason that they lost Challenger to the fact that they had the teacher in space because it was such a big PR thing. They wanted it to launch while the kids were in school, during oh. the school day. They were pushing for that launch on that day. They didn't want to delay it. It had already been delayed a couple times. It's a shuttle. It happens. Um, and they pushed and pushed and pushed, and they felt that they had given a go when they shouldn't have. At least that's part of it. Yeah. That's not all of it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but right, they, they I, do feel that was the, that was when PR kind of trumped the science. I think to some extent. That's what I heard was the yeah. mathematicians and scientists were saying, "Don't launch." Mm -hmm. We're at fifty-two minutes. Oh, this is fascinating. <laughs> we could go on for hours. Well, we always try to keep it to forty-five minutes when yeah. we cut because honestly, people. After like 45 minutes, they turn you off. Probably not if Shannon's on there. You know, they're mm -hmm. probably like, no, no, oh, no. Yeah, let's go on for another couple of hours. <laughs> Is there anything else, Shannon, that you would like to bring up? Just to remind, uh, is this mostly to students, I assume? It's for people everybody. Like, for everybody. Just to remind people that they, that if you're interested in STEM, to, to, it's, it's, STEM is STEM or STEAM. It's the barriers of entry that were there when you and I were kids, mm -hmm. the the misogynistic issues, the World War II kind of training military. You've got to go through that process to get into the program. Those barriers, for the most part, are gone, and you can get into this field. I have a friend who is a he is an astrobiologist. That's what he does for a living. He is my age. He's in his 50s. He just started in this field because he had a mid-career change. He was in pharmaceuticals for years. Now, granted, that's a STEM-adjacent career, let's be fair. Those are related careers in some way. But he decided he wanted to um, 
changed his life and going to astrobiology. And he had a hard time finding a PhD program that would take him because his run out for his career wasn't as long as a 20-year-old. Oh. Hmm. Which is an interesting problem. Don't let those universities, you know, fine. If that university doesn't want you, go find another one. My friend, the tech journalist, is working on a on a um, neurosciences master's degree right now. She's also my age. I mean, she's my best friend from growing up. So we're we're literally two weeks apart in age, you know. And she had the same problem. She had to go to. She lives in New York. She had to go to State University of New York because they're a public school. They're not going to turn you away, you know, like a private school might or a PhD program might. Um, you know, don't let those people and those those universities, you know, dissuade you. Go take a class at your local, go to Utah Tech and take an integrated learning continuing ed class. Or I'm sure UNLV offers those. Or I know UCLA offers them down in L.A. I've taken several over the years in random fields that, you know, have nothing to do with my career. Just because they sounded like fun. Sure. <laughs> Woohoo! Fictional writing class. <laughs> well, you can always use that. You can always use that. But yeah, but find something you're interested in and go pursue it. The beauty of this generation is you have the, this amazing thing. It's called YouTube. You can learn anything on YouTube. <laughs> you know, my son, my, both my kids have learned how to change oil in cars and how to unlock a locked door from the other side and all sorts of when they lock the brothers in the bathroom you know, kids. if you can think it up yeah it's there it's there if you'd like to learn how to make a glitter bomb apparently mark rover has a whole new set of glitter bomb videos out there you know? <laughs> our artist we interviewed last week steve also said there were a lot of art videos on youtube yes i've been watching those have you been watching this? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And she has a YouTube channel too. Oh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nancy Good, right? Yeah, maybe Steam should have a YouTube channel. That's a good. But right one. now, they're just going to have to deal with a podcast channel. <laughs> Shannon, but there's time. This has been a fascinating discussion. Steve invited me to hang out a little bit longer today and be part of this. And great. I'm so glad I mm-hmm. did. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I know. This has been fun. Yeah, and we appreciate it. Absolutely. Anything? Oh, we've got our last question. Even though this is Steam Chatter. Well, that's what I didn't know if we were doing that because it's Steam Chatter. Yeah. Shannon, Shannon, what has inspired you this week? I mean, it could be a lot of things. Rose Parade. Yeah, I was going to say, what has inspired me this week? Uh, Um, your, Your son building a... An architectural, <laughs> architectural marvel up, yes. in the, up in the hills. I don't know what has inspired me this week. This it's only Monday. Um, we can go back Francisco's to last week. Last week I was on vacation. I was skiing. So I <laughs> actually, you know what inspired me this week is I was up in Park City last for the last two week and a half skiing. Uh, my older son lives up there, and Sundance is there. Sundance just started last Thursday, the day I left. Oh, did it? Okay. And what inspired me there was, first of all, just how much that I had not been up there in a long time during Sundance and how much it's grown into a kind of a corporate program. I mean, back in the day when we'd go up, you know, you'd sit on Main Street at restaurants and kids that look just this side of homeless would come through and say, come see my movie and hand you a flyer for free tickets. That doesn't happen anymore. You know, but what inspired me is how many of these tech companies there are. 
Like these, and just in the movie industry. I mean, yes, Adobe was there and Acura Motors was there showing off their new car, which, by the way, was our sound car this year. It was really awesome. It's an Acura electric vehicle. Um, and Chase Sapphire Bank had some big pop-up. And, of course, Variety, the movie industry, Insider Magazine had it. But all of these little companies I've never heard of. And they were all setting up their venues because it was like the couple days before. But... And I come by and go, what is this? Oh, we do digital image touch-ups for animated movies in the, in the anime tradition. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but it really inspired me that this is this, this whole development that goes on. And you just, it's mind-blowing to me what creative forces are out there in the universe to inspire you. And I'm like, oh, man, I spent I don't know how much time last weekend just looking these companies up and like, oh, check this one out. You know, it's super exciting. Talk about AI and STEM. Ooh, AI and STEM. I better say STEAM or I'll be in trouble. Or STEAM. AI and STEAM. Having grown up in the generation where the Cold War was still going strong and the threats from Big Brother... You know, and and other nefarious sources <laughs> were always weighed on your mind. I've always been one who's been a little leery of the the Terminator AI universe, but I have to admit, I am fascinated with AI. I think, yes, a lot of harm can come from it, I, but that's true of every possible technological advancement that has jumped on the scene from the internet to cars to irons to the printing press let's be fair you know but ai and steam i just see that as something i don't know where it's going to go this is a classic example of i don't know what job you're going to have in 10 years or even five years with ai but i see endless possibilities with artificial intelligence in healthcare, in advancing our ability to explore other planets in a more efficient way than how we've done it since the 60s. AI, being able to build something that can physically go to the bottom of our ocean, the which has been explored less than outer space, but being able to communicate with that and have it be able to be autonomous and go as long as it can handle the pressure and temperature changes, can go and record data and bring it back and adapt. And that whole adaptive machine learning aspect for STEAM, I also see it being useful in being able to learn how, when you have a disaster, to go in and be able to search for survivors in an earthquake, let's say, under building rubble, or to be able to go in and analyze what's happening during a major fire, like a big forest fire, like what happened in California or what happened in Maui last year. That would be a good example of a fire that's recent in everyone's mind. I just I just see that adaptive learning, machine learning to be a huge benefit to STEAM. And you think of it from the creative, creating art standpoint or creating, solving math problems. I look at it more in the holistic kind of how would it benefit humankind? Because I know... Back, I'm going to go on an aside now. <laughs> you know, you look back in the days, if you go back far enough, think of telephones. And you would pick up your phone and some nice person on the other end would say, what exchange, please? And they'd, you tell them and they, they'd literally take a cord and plug it in and you talk to Aunt Betty in Missouri or whatever, right? And of course, now you, you know, I lived in Hawaii as a kid. 
and you'd call grandma, and grandma sounded like she was on the moon mm-hmm. with that connection. And it cost, I don't know, the current the current estimate, you know, the current in current dollars, like $20 a second or some silly thing to call her, you know. And now it's like I WhatsApped my gal I work with in Japan or in Japan in Australia twice this morning saying, I'm not going to make that call today at two o'clock because I realized it was at two o'clock, not three o'clock, because I live in a different time zone than where I'm going to be today. And someday I'm going to get used to this. <laughs> because Vegas has always been in the same time zone as Los Angeles, which is where I came from. But, you know, when you live oh, in St. George 20 minutes away, right, you've got to remember yeah. it's an hour different. Yes, you do. <laughs> so I was actually here 40 minutes early this morning because I forgot about the time change when I left the house. <laughs> So I went over to McDonald's and I texted with my son for a few minutes and took oh, care okay. of some emails. <laughs> you know. But you look at those things and how AI is going to be the next generation of being able to communicate with your friend in Australia or your friend on Mars. Or, you know, you're going to be able to build an, build a, an outpost on Mars and it's going to be able AI, your machine adaptive learning is going to be able to handle your crop generation and and your food sources and your that type of stuff and you're not going to have to think about it you're not going to have to get on the roof and turn your antenna to talk to earth anymore shannon thank you very much you're welcome we really that appreciate was fun. it thanks shannon of course thanks thank you for joining us on this journey through the fascinating world of stem From unraveling the mysteries of the cosmos to delving into the intricate complexities of the microscopic realm, we hope this podcast has sparked your curiosity and ignited your passion for science, technology, engineering, art, agriculture, and mathematics. As we close this chapter, remember that the pursuit of knowledge knows no bounds. Stay curious, stay inspired, and keep exploring the frontiers of STEM. Until next time... May your questions lead to discoveries and your curiosity drive innovation. This is Mesquite Works Steam Chat signing off from Mesquite, Nevada. Mm-hmm.